Now, <clears throat> last week, we saw that Jacob, who is the deceiver, who deceived his way into in, to getting the blessing of the firstborn, you remember? He uh, deceived Isaac, dressed up like Esau, and received the blessing of the firstborn. Then, he was sent away to find a, a wife in Haran. Um, and Brother Ray preached a message about how he had a dream and the Lord passed down the blessing of Isaac to him. And last week we saw that the deceiver was deceived because after working for Rachel for seven years, um, Jacob was tricked on his wedding night to go into Leah, the sister with weak eyes. The sister that he didn't want. And he had to work another seven years for Rachel, the sister he did want. So now here we have Jacob, a man that was deceived by Laban, with two wives. And what we see today is the offspring of those wives. And... Um, so we're going to pick up in Genesis 29, verse 31. As I read this, there's a song in, in a movie, I forget what it's called now, but the song talks of, is, is a song about a person who has a lust for more that will never be satisfied. And I think the song is called, entitled It Will Never Be Enough for Me. The Greatest Showman. The Greatest Showman. And this woman sings a, a song about how she, she desires mountains of gold and, that, and that's still too little. The stars are, too, are still too little. It will never be enough for me. And that song, that song has been playing in my mind as I've studied this passage this week because you see two women here who are given children by the Lord but no matter what they get it is never enough to acquire what they actually want so starting in verse 31 of chapter 29 and we will read to uh, chapter 30 verse 24 now the Lord saw now when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. And therefore she called his name Judah, and then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore no children, Jacob no children, she envied her sister, and she said to Jacob, Give me children or I die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and said, 
Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of your womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her, that she may birth children on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And then Rachel said, God has judged me, and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a second son. Then, Jacob, then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Now when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. And then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come to me. So she called his name Gad. And Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she, shall, so she called his name Asher. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Then she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Now, when Jacob came in from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages, because I have given my, gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with good endowment. Now my husband will honor me, because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. There was an atheist... Um, novelist named David Foster Wallace who was speaking at a commencement ceremony and said one of the most profound words that has now gone down in infamy um, that I want to read to you right now. He said, in, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we will worship. Pretty much any earthly thing 
you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will, ne and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect and being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Now, in this passage, both sisters have what the other one longs for, if you've caught that yet. Rachel has the love of her husband, Jacob, and that is what Leah wants. Leah is the ugly sister with soft eyes who got Jacob, her husband, through deception Jacob does not love her. She, he does not have affection for her. And Rachel does, and that's the one thing Leah wants. What does Leah have? Leah has an open womb. She bears children. And that's the exact thing that Rachel does not have for most of the passage, and that's what she wants. She wants to be the productive wife. She wants to be the wife that bears children. During this time, you have to understand that Bearing children was what made status for a woman in society. It was the thing that women were supposed to do in that time in that culture. And so to not bear children was a blight on you. It was, it was an embarrassment. It meant that perhaps you were caught in sin or something and God was withholding from you. You were not you were not a productive wife, and so this was a this was a a wretched sadness for Rachel. But Leah is bearing children left and right. So the passage, so Rachel has love, and Leah has an open womb. So the passage boils down to a rivalry between Leah and Rachel to gain what the other one has. And as I see it, I, I just see lives in pursuit of acceptance and love, which is not a bad thing. But it's if you live a life in pursuit of acceptance and love, and you place that desire on anything else other than God, it will eat you alive. Like David Foster Wallace is saying, whether it's money, whether it's beauty, whether it's success, fortune, comfort, a feeling of well-being, peace itself. Whatever you seek in life, if you seek that apart from God, it will eat you alive. It will never give you what you want. It will never be enough for you. And that's the problem of worshiping false gods because they take from you and they don't give to you. 
but a life lived in self-denying, sacrificial worship and praise of God, that's a life that God will use, and that's a life that will be increasingly less oriented towards oneself, towards gaining comfort or status or filling oneself up with whatever it might be. Because praise and sacrifice, by definition, is other-oriented. It's God-oriented. And that's what God uses. You know, Jesus said, a seed, unless it dies, will not bear fruit, will not become a plant and bear fruit. So a seed needs to die in the ground. And then, once it dies, once it's buried in the ground and begins to germinate, then it can become a plant and bear fruit. But if that seed does not die, it will not be useful in the garden. And if we do not die to ourselves and lesser gods, we will become, we will not be useful in the Lord's work. Let's look at the passage then a little bit more closely today. I kind of want to just walk through this passage with you as a running commentary. First of all, I want you to notice the theme of barrenness again. Here again is the wife of a patriarch who is barren. Verse 31, we see that not only does Leah's womb need to be opened by the Lord, but Rachel was barren. So again, the only way the divine promise proceeds in Genesis is if there is divine intervention, is if God himself acts and brings life to a womb where there was not life in the first place. Sarah, earlier in Genesis, it says that God did to her what he promised and gave her a son. Rebecca, Isaac prayed, and then God opened her womb. Leah, God sees that she is hated and opens her womb. Rachel, later in the passage, is remembered by God, and her womb is open. Barrenness, that theme of barrenness is very important in Genesis and throughout Scripture, because it means that it is showing us, I think, it's showing God's people that God must, must bring life in places where there is not life. That God must bring that life, and man cannot bring it. One commentator, John Salehammer, says, The fulfillment of the promise is possible at each crucial juncture only because of a specific act of God. So God's plan of redemption is only made possible because of a specific act of God. And that usually takes the form of there being a place where there is no life. And life is not possible. And God giving life in that area. In Genesis... The, those arenas where there is no life are the womb. In the New Covenant, it was the tomb itself where God breathed life and Jesus rose from the dead. 
Today, it is people who must be born of God, regenerated, where God will give them the Holy Spirit, thus giving life and power into a place that was once dark and void and without hope. So you follow me on that? God's people are not a natural people. We're not a religious people who follow a set of rules. We're a people who have been transformed by the power of God through faith and thereby brought into cooperation with the divine order and given his power in a unique and special way. The life of God in the soul of man. That's what God's people have. Now, this passage shows us, yes, it shows us the perils of worshiping lesser gods and idols. But I, I, don't, I don't want you to think that God doesn't care about this life. He wants you to be with him in glory, but he also cares about this worldly things. Look at verse 31. It says, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. Again, understand that Leah is not the one that Jacob loved. She is, again, the ugly sister who became Jacob's wife through deception. And so Leah is desperate for Jacob's affection. But Jacob loved Rachel, not Leah. That's when God acted. It's when God saw that Leah was hated by her husband. Now, what does hated mean? This is often debated. Hated probably means something less than a loathing hatred, like I want you to die kind of hatred, but it probably seems something, means something more than just less loved, as is often says. It might mean just not interested or despised, probably more like disregarded, just not wanted. It is seeing that Leah was hated when God acts. God has compassion on Leah and opens her womb. What I would like to draw out here is that God is a God of compassion. Even in regards to the affairs of this life. The word compassion, I, I like that word compassion because it's very, it means two things. Calm, which means with, and passion means to suffer. So to say that God is compassionate means that he suffers with people. He suffers with his people. Um... This needs to be something that's embraced and a source of great comfort in your life. I want you just, just by way of illustration, turn with me to the book of Isaiah, verse 38. God does care about the affairs in this life. He does see your nervousness. He does see your weariness in life. He does see your tears. He does see your sadness, even that poor baby's sadness. He, he, sees, he sees what you're dealing with, and he has compassion. He suffers with his people. Amen? Um, 
Isaiah 38. I love this passage. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die, and you shall not recover. He's sick unto death. He's going to die and not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly, perhaps weeping for his family, weeping for his own life. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, and God said, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, and I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add to you fifteen years to your life, and I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. I, I love, first of all, Hezekiah is, the, is just a beautiful picture in certain snapshots of his life who just lay his burdens before the Lord. And here he's, he's told that he's going to die to set his house in order, and he cries and weeps bitterly before the Lord, and the Lord sees his tears. So the Lord, as I read the Bible, is compassionate. He suffers with. He sees your tears. And he does not regard you. Disregard you. Um, so what... There's a... I'm tempted to go into some, a theological debate here. But just by way of, pa of passing... There's, a, there's an odd doctrine, I think, um, growing in, in theological circles. And, and maybe you, this doesn't concern you, I, I understand, but it's something that kind of gets on my nerves. Um, it's called the impassibility of God. That God has no passions. That he is pure act. And that when you speak about God and you speak about his compassion, his love, his suffering with, his feeling of indignation, every one of those is an anthropomorphism. And God has, is pure act and therefore does not feel affection or emotion or indignation. Or he, he does not truly suffer with. Um, I, I, as I read the Bible, I just don't see that. I just don't see that. I, I don't see a God who is utterly mundane and dispassionate. I see a God who suffers with his people, like Christ. When the people came, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And Christ, as the full revelation of God the Father, shows us what God is like. So that's just something that I find an odd theological... Uh, puzzle, I find it strange that that's growing, growing um, and gaining status in today's evangelical churches. Alright, put that aside. So there's that. I believe God has compassion. 
and that he suffers with people. So, he sees your confusion. He sees your fear. He sees your nervousness. He sees your tears. He sees your frustration. Now, what you can do with that, as we've said many times here, is you can lay that before the Lord, or you can shoulder it yourself. I say, be like Hezekiah. Turn and weep bitterly before the Lord. Turn and lay out, write your problems down on a sheet of paper and lay them before the Lord and trust Him to act and move forward with confidence in Him. And I believe it's the compassion of God which leads to His vengeance on the wicked. It's because He is compassionate that he will take vengeance on the wicked. Because there are people who are cruel. And there are... I'm thinking about things that happen in the Middle East and some places in Africa. I mean, there I, I hear horror stories. And it's because of God is a compassionate God that those men should fear. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And it's because God suffers with his people that he will take vengeance on those who slaughter the innocent. Now, Leah, moving on, sees that um, sees her child's children as a means of gaining affection for her husband Jacob. Which is very interesting. The first three is almost, I don't want to say pitiful, but just she dedicates her children and she names her children um, as a testimony that she wants affection from her husband. In verse 32, um, she called his name Reuben. And Reuben, and she says, now my, my husband will love me. Reuben says, see a son. I bore you a son. Now my husband will love me. And Simeon, she says, um, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, she has borne me, he has borne me another son. She called his name Simeon. Sounds like hated. So she's... She's naming these children um, after her desire for affection for her husband. And again, verse 34, she bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, he was called Levi. Levi sounds like the name for attached, the Hebrew word for attached. So, Reuben, see a son. I bore you a son. Now my husband will love me. Simeon, it's because the Lord saw that I've been hated. Levi, now my husband will be attached to me. All of these is a dedication to her desire to be loved by her husband. Then the fourth child is born. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. And therefore, she called his name Judah. And then she ceased bearing. 
Judah sounds like the word for praise. I wish the story ended there for Leah. I wish she stopped bearing children and ended there. But it doesn't. Nevertheless, this is a high point in Leah's life. She finally offers a sacrifice to the Lord. Instead of seeing her children as a means to gain the affection of her husband, she denies herself and offers this child to the Lord. This time, what I'm doing with the birth of this child is not pining for affection that my husband is not giving, giving me, but this time I will praise the Lord. Now Rachel sees this and is inflamed with um, longing to bear children too. And so she goes into Jacob and says, says when Rachel saw that um, she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. And she said to Jacob, give me children or I die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and she said, he said, Am I in the place of God that has withheld children from you? And so what Rachel does is she resorts to an old family trick. The old family trick is if you are unable to conceive in this family, you give your husband your maidservant to bear children on your behalf. We saw Sarah do this very thing with Hagar, right? And so this is, this is something she's familiar with. And so Rachel gives Jacob her maidservant, Bilhah. So you ever heard of a pinch hitter in baseball? The pitcher's not really a good hitter, and sometimes they bring in a pinch hitter. This is like a pinch wife scenario. I'm not bearing children, so I'm, I'm bringing in a pinch wife. The ESV Study Bible says this practice was part of the ancient Near Eastern culture. Children born, to the sub, children born to the substitute or second wife were regarded as belonging to the main or first wife. This is so far removed from us today and it sounds so awkward and odd to have a pinch wife, but times change. And so this apparently was a common practice in the ancient Near East, and that's why we see it so many times. Um, but it was not God's original intention, which you see in Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, singular. And the two shall become one flesh. So there's a clinging, there's a husband and wife clinging to one another and becoming one flesh. Whenever you see polygamy in the Bible, sometimes concessions are made for it, but almost invariably, I've noticed that there's strife and dissension whenever you see multiple wives. Whether that's Solomon, whether that's Abraham, or in this situation. So, Rachel's maidservant Bilhah goes and, and has intercourse with Jacob so that Rachel could bear children through her. And she does. She bears two children. The first child is named Dan. Dan sounds like the word for judged in the sense of God has judged in my favor. And uh, I think that NASB um, translates it correctly when it says, the Lord has vindicated me. So, 
as soon as Rachel's servant bears a, a son, Rachel says, Aha! The Lord has vindicated me. Now I am the productive wife. Now my, my maidservant is bearing children. And so I'm, I'm starting to catch up with my sister. Then her second Bilhah bears a second son. And Rachel names that son Naphtali. And Naphtali sounds like the word wrestle. Because I've wrestled against my sister and have prevailed. That's why God gave me this, this one, verse 9. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Very odd that Rachel names her children out of spite for her sister and in competition for her sister. Imagine being named names after a competition. I named this one Gotcha, or this one Take That. Very strange naming scenario. Leah wants to fight fire with fire. So Leah responds by giving Jacob her maidservant, Zilpah, who bears two more sons for Leah, Gad and Asher. Gad means good fortune, and Asher means happy. So God has given me good fortune, and now I'm happy. So these is lives in competition with one another. This is a very awkward and strange scenario now. Um, there's a rivalry to see who's going to bear more children to Jacob. And Jacob's got four women to handle now. And in Rachel's case, the desire is to be a productive wife. In Leah's case, she sees the children as a means to gain affection from Jacob. This reminds me of James 4, verse 1. What, calls, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And then he goes on to encourage Christians to ask God, but in this situation, you see quarreling and fighting and using maidservants to be the more productive wife. Then, in verse 14 through 16, you see what may be one of the most bizarre deals made in the history of the Bible. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. So he found some mandrakes in the field. I think it's a, a yellowish fruit um, with, with greenish leaves. and um, I want to say it's a, in the potato family from what I read, but these mandrakes grow in the field and he brought it to his mother Leah. So Leah has these mandrakes and then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, basically, giving a paraphrase, <coughs> If you give me some of your son's mandrakes, then... 
Jacob can lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Now, what is going on here? Is Rachel just really hungry? I think what we see is Jacob prefers the bed of Rachel and does not spend nights very often with Leah, although she does have four children at this point, but most of the nights are spent with Rachel, the one whom he loves. And Leah sees this selling of mandrakes or purchasing a night with Jacob through her mandrakes as an opportunity to bear another child. Um, why mandrakes? Mandrakes at this point in time were believed to increase fertility. So they were thought to be an aphrodisiac and something that would help you bear, bear children. And so Rachel has not borne any children on her own at this point. She had to use her maidservant um, to give children to Jacob. So she thinks, if I have these mandrakes, perhaps I'll be filled with fertility because that's what these things do. And so Leah sells her her mandrakes. Rachel gives Leah the right to her bedchamber with Jacob. And that brings us to verse 16. When Jacob came from the field in from the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. How about that? Um, very, very strange, but I think this is just illustrates the length that this rivalry has gone to. Now Leah is, gonna, is, is selling fruit to spend the night with Jacob, and Rachel is trying to gain fertility through mandrakes. Two more children are born after this in verse um, 17 then God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore a fifth son Leah said God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband so she called his name Issachar and, um, and Leah conceived again and she bore Jacob a sixth son and then Leah said, God has endowed me with good endowment. This is the last son she bears. And here is what she says. Now my husband will honor me. Because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Zebulun means, sounds like honor. It never happened for Leah. Leah never did, it seems, get quite the affection that she wanted from her husband. But she wanted it, and she never gave up. Rachel bears one more children, one more child as well. Verse 21. <clears throat> verse 22, rather. Then God remembered Rachel. So Rachel's womb needed to be opened by God, and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore to us and bore a son and said God has taken away my reproach so finally she bears a son and she says in verse 24 it says 
called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me another son. It's still, it's, you see, it's still not enough. It's still, she still didn't get what she wanted. She would not be satisfied, even with the bearing of sons. Uh, um, I see in this passage, each child is dedicated to the mother's own cause. Rachel names her child, children, vindicated, or prevailed against my sister, or add to me another. So there's a spirit of competition that never ceases in Rachel's own heart. Leah, now my husband will love me. Now he will be attached to me. Every child was dedicated to the mother's own cause, except for one, Judah. Judah was the one who Leah said in verse 35, this time I will praise the Lord. How beautiful is it that in the midst of this turmoil and rivalry and dissension and competition, one child is offered to God, dedicated to Him, and Leah says, this time I will praise the Lord. Judah, and no one else was offered to God as a sacrifice. Then it is little wonder that later in Genesis, Judah is the one whom Jacob prophesies over and says, the scepter will belong to you. The king will come from you. And little surprise that in the genealogy of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, he came not through the line of Zebulun, honor, not through the line of Naphtali, wrestling, not through the, high, the line of vindicated or prevailed against my sister or add to me another, or now my husband will love me, nor through the line of now he will be attached to me, but through the line of Judah, this time I will praise the Lord. Matthew 1, verses 2 through 3. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and Judah the father of Perez. The line of Christ comes through Judah, the one child whom Leah offered to the Lord. This time I will praise the Lord. This shows me that God is pleased to use only what is poured out to him. Now he will redeem evil for good, but he is pleased to use what is poured out to him. The one child was given to the Lord shows us what God uses to advance his kingdom. It's praise and worship. For the individual, for us Christians today, if you want to be useful to God, if I want to be useful to God, that requires of us what? A life of sacrifice. Paul says, by the mercies of God, 
Present yourselves before God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable before Him, which is your reasonable service. That is how we can be useful to the Lord, to be holy and acceptable to the Lord, to be Christ-like in our actions and attitudes. And when we fail and fall short, and we will fail and fall short, we repent and turn, turn towards Christ-likeness again. <coughs> it's Christ-likeness that God uses. Um, Mark showed me, or Mark has shared a, a, an article by a pastor, T. Austin Sparks, which I read this week. And um, it's an excellent article. I'm going to have to ask you, Mark, the name of that again. But <clears throat> one of my favorite lines in that article, T. Austin Sparks talks about what God values. And he, sa- he says, What God values is according to the measure of Christ in that thing. That's what God values. So if you want God to value your service to him, if it's tainted with pride, or if it's tainted with um, a desire to gain status and affection among your chosen group, now they will love me. Or if it's a desire to one-up someone another with great wrestlings, I've wrestled against this person. Christ is not in that, and he will not be pleased to use that. But if it has a measure of Christ in it, this time I will praise the Lord. And it's offered as a sacrifice to him, not as a way to be built up or honored, but as a sacrifice before him then God is pleased to use such things. What God values is according to the measure of Christ in that thing. I, I think that's one of the more profound sentences I've read. For the church, for example, what about worship? This is why we... This is why we sing the songs we do. Understand this, because they're God-glorifying. I, I have seen so many churches fall into the trap of having lights, camera, action, smoke. <coughs> and it becomes a performance. There's, there, Christ is not in that. The congregation is not singing, they're watching. And I don't think God is glorified by such things ultimately. What about pastors? Pastors spend so much time planning on how to get people into the church with programs and um, silly events and spin their wheels on making flyers and and other futile things, excuse me. I remember, I remember early in my pastorate, I saw men doing this. And 
I'm not saying that they're ungodly. I just I don't think that's the way God actually makes a difference in people's lives. And not that he can't use that, and not that it's bad to get our name out there. But there is a fine line. There is a fine line. And I think so many ministers have gone the way of naphtali almost, with great wrestlings. I've wrestled against this pastor, and I'm... Or going the way of Zebulun. Now I can gain honor by doing this. But it's, it's the church and the people of God who come to worship the Lord and obey Him. That's the church and the people that God will use. And we need to be then a community who comes to church to worship the Lord to tremble at his word, to love the brotherhood, and to be salt and light in the world, and to live our lives as a sacrifice to the Lord. Anything else you are currently worshiping, <clears throat> you know your heart, and you know how it, is, how it is taking from you peace and joy. Anything you worship other than God is going to try to eat you alive. So there's a negative, there's a, there's a, death bringing negative consequence of not worshiping the Lord in your daily actions and there is a life bringing God honoring missional <coughs> element to a life lived in sacrifice to the Lord poured out before him that he will use for his glory so I see here in this passage an opportunity and a warning. The warning is be very aware of those things in your life that would try to assert themselves as gods and who slowly receive worship from you by your attitudes or actions and want to draw out wrestlings from you and your affection from you and your love from you, whether those are people or things. Look then at Judah. This time I will praise the Lord and see how the scepter was given to his line. See how Christ was born through his line. And notice that God uses sacrifice and praise and self-denying worship in his world to further his kingdom. Let's close in a word of prayer.